twofold kind of expression about the Son of God, Jesus, both in his heart, from the theme verse from Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. We've been exploring what the heart of Jesus looks like, but also know that that which he does and say, and the events that are part of the story of his life, entirely mirror that the outward and the inward. And looking afresh at some of these key moments in the life of Jesus and understanding the heart of God. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James John, the brothers of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as light, as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers say, of the, uh, sorry, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Transfigurations, in some senses, are big business. Uh, if you watch uh, anything on the television, lots of things are to do with change. Changing rooms, makeovers, nips and tucks. And uh, of course, they are quite costly to get a new look or a new face. Botox and dermal fillers, that's the experience limit that I have on these things. Not looking at anyone here. People even change the outward in some fashion, and uh, it can even go as far as changing one's name. Sometimes it makes people a little bit more exciting. I'm sure Henry knows who Reginald Dwight is. Elton John. Can't quite see Reginald Dwight in stars and lights, can you? A bit more flamboyant with Elton John. Eldrick Woods became Tiger Woods. Francis Gunn, we're up on our celebrities here, aren't we? Uh, Judy Garland, Calvin Broadus, this is probably beyond the cultural reference point of us gathered, Snoop Dogg Dogg, Snoop Dogg, yeah, okay, um, Ralph Lipschitz, Ralph Lauren, 
Yeah. And this one, a little bit dated, but Florian Cloud de Bonnyvale Armstrong. Quite a mouthful. She shortened it to Dido. <laughs> Not surprisingly. All of those things tend to be focused on the outward, not the inward. In this encounter, this wonderful story called the transfiguration of Jesus for the obvious reasons, suddenly that Jesus that they had walked with, talked with, journeyed with, eaten with, heard teach and see work miracles, was transformed. The word is metamorphosed in front of their eyes. It wasn't something, uh, the, the tense of that verb when Jesus is transfigured, it wasn't something that Jesus sort of did kind of strangely in himself, but it, the, the sense of that verb is that God did it, kind of drew back the veil, gave a glimpse of the glory of Jesus right with them. It wasn't that Jesus had got fed up with his name and style and that he wanted to rebrand himself. Rather, Peter, James, and John were privileged to get a preview, a taster, so to speak, of truly who he is. Now, don't mishear that to say that there was some sham, there was some kind of mirage, there was some kind of a game at play, that they knew Jesus, they were beginning to discover just who he was, and that is brilliant, but there was more to know of him. It wasn't that God was kind of uh, just sort of uh, just showing them a glimpse, and now truly there was kind of some intrinsic difference that they were seeing, these privileged three, not at all. But what Jesus was within was once made visible without. They saw in unveiled glory the wonder of this person, Jesus. Fully human, fully God. It's really important that we hold chapter 17 and this kind of revelation moment with the revelation that's gone on before in chapter 16. You may remember it. It's the story where Jesus is questioning them, saying, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they kind of come up with a list of, uh, some say Elijah, some say a prophet, some say a teacher. And Peter gets it right, nail on the head. You are the Christ, he says. Son of the living God. Jesus says, spot on. This is revealed to you, revelation moment. And upon this confession, I will build my church. The reason I say that it's important to link in one of the few places where one event is linked chronologically to the next, verse one, after six days, Jesus took them up the mountain. That this, the writers of the Gospels want us to hold these two things together because it wasn't just Peter's confession that was important, but Jesus went on to teach the disciples something really important. As Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah and says this is a wonderful moment in the heart of the Gospel when people get it, that this truly is the one that God has promised and sent his one and only son. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the teachers, and the priests, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life again. Peter takes him aside and says, that cannot be. 
should not be, must not be. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. That's a stinging rebuke. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's like a route map in this key moment where Jesus has been showing and demonstrating and and letting everyone know who would come to him the good news of the gospel. Now there's a trajectory change. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. The people have experienced and tasted and seen and understood the wonderful goodness of God. And now he says, in order for this to be extended to all peoples, in all places, in all times, I must go to Jerusalem to suffer, to die. That's his mission and task. To heal, yes. To restore, yes. But to work something that cannot be done in any other way than in this way. The way of death. Of execution, of self-sacrifice. To take up the cross and bear it. That's when the moment of transfiguration comes. Of course, in this, in this moment, there's, there's lots going on. It's a slightly bizarre story. Up a high mountain, we're not sure which, with the three disciples and Jesus, and suddenly standing beside them are Moses and Elijah. Tell me eternal life isn't real. These aren't ghosts or apparitions or some sort of hologram. A reminder that God holds all life. And life continues after death. But beside Jesus are, uh, are Moses and Elijah. And, and it's not that bit that freaks out the disciples, but they are pretty astonished. They say, shall we build some tents? But why Moses and Elijah? Well, I think there's a few reasons. Uh, I'll sum up a couple in these ways. That Remember that Moses and Elijah are the greatest of prophets and leaders from the Old Testament. And in some sense, they represent the span of the Old Testament. Remember, Moses, the one who led people out of Egypt, who was up the mountain when they were given the Ten Commandments, that glorious moment when God's people were formed, and out of that moment, they became a people, followed the ways of the Lord into the promised land. Moses, the giver of the law, from God, the gift of God, but, but also Elijah, often seen as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Both had those mountaintop experiences. Elijah was told to stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord would pass by, and a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, the Lord not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his face, his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mountain, mouth of the cave and a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
In many ways, these two appearing with Jesus to represent the entire scope of God's dealings and work and miraculous intervention, his self-revelation, but something of a climax is happening. Jesus himself said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5, 17. This cloud envelops them and Moses and Elijah disappear. They fade. Why? They, they are the forerunners. They have done their task. They have, have their, their, their work and, and kind of fulfillment of what they came to do is completed in Jesus Christ. And they disappear into the background because the central figure, the main player, the hope of the nations, the long promised one is center stage. Jesus. Hallelujah. Dear Peter says, let's build some shelters. At least he's being hospitable and caring and kind. Maybe he wants to maintain that moment. Maybe it's a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles and recognizes it's something almighty that's happening. Maybe he just doesn't think, I don't know what to do, but I can build some shelters. Maybe he's just trying to make sense of his overwhelming experience to memorialize this moment. And then comes the voice, the voice of the Father again, like at his baptism, when he associated and stood front and center, resolutely slap bang with humanity in all its mess. The Father still declares. Again, a resonance from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Today you are my son, today I've become your father. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. The voice of the Father, this is my son whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. Just as an aside, there's a little bit of an arrogance when we say, when we bypass Jesus and we say, we've heard from the Father or we can get to know God and kind of find a route other than Jesus. Why would we do that? The Father has put his blessing on his son and says, listen to him. It's in the Father's providence and favor to say, listen to my son. He speaks truth. He brings life. He is the way. If anyone ever says to you, oh, what's the point of Jesus? I think it's one of the things that, that Phil often experiences. That, am I right, Phil? Uh, he's still with me. He's nodding. Uh, in Alpha, that often Jesus is seen as a bit of like, well, we can understand God, the Father, maybe the Spirit, because he's our encounter, but where does Jesus fit in to the picture? Absolutely, he is the key that unlocks truth. He is the doorway by which we enter. He is the full and final and complete revelation of God. We cannot bypass him, find a route around him, marginalize him. Otherwise, we end up in a false place.
even in this most glorious glimpse of Jesus. Jesus himself, as the Father has said, listen to him, says this, I have to suffer. In the same way, in verse 12, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. We live in an age where we hold that easily because we know the story. But when you ponder that, this is still of enormous magnitude. That God the Son should die. Truly dead. Heart stopped beating. Brain dead. Caught up, consumed by death. To see decay. But the Father raises him back into resurrected life. Death is still the unconquerable enemy of each one of us. There is no way around it. It will consume us all, but for the Lord Jesus. We have a certain number of heartbeats. I hope to God many of us have hundreds and thousands more. But there will come the time. And we will die. Bit bleak, isn't it, on Mothering Sunday? But real. And if it wasn't for Jesus, it would be a dark time. And the astonishing thing is this one, this Jesus who was transfigured in front of them and shone as the sun would be plunged into darkness and the eternal quiet of death. for us. You see, this is the anathema. This is the stumbling block. This is the mystery and majesty of God's character and nature. And this is who is being revealed. Of course, he is all-powerful, but love demonstrates that power. If we have a conception of God that he is abstract and uncaring and unchanged, immovable, we've missed the wonder of who he is. Of course he is magnificent and all-powerful, and of course scriptures declare that, but there's something of deep magnitude of the holiness of God, the wonder of God, such that he should love to the point of emptying himself entirely and embracing everything wicked and cruel and evil and taking it upon himself. 
As we've been looking at the heart of, the G- of Jesus, he is tempted in every way. And we, are a- he ha- we have a great high priest who is not unconcerned or unaware of what it means to be struggling, to fear death, to walk through pain and betrayal and hurt. Absolutely he knows. And still is wonderfully glorious. Of course, Peter and the other two saw in that moment the otherness of God. Moses encountered that at the burning bush as the bush didn't burn up and he knew it was a holy place and he discovered the revelation of God, the Yahweh, I am who I am. Isaiah in the temple, Saul on the road to Damascus, going apart with Jesus up on a mountain. They suddenly find themselves speechless. This moment of revelation that shattered their preconceptions. Notice the heart of Jesus in their fear. I mean, you read the Old Testament, reading through it at the moment uh, as part of my kind of six months. And, and again and again, when the Lord encounters, the, the, the angel of God appears or, or the voice of God appears or God kind of is, is in some appearing in the Old Testament, there's genuine fear because, you know, there are encounters where people genuinely die. I mean, that sounds weird, doesn't it? But they encounter the Lord and they drop dead. Or they, they withdraw so far and saying, we, we will be burned up. How can we encounter the Lord? And there's that sense for these three of, they, they fall terrified. By love, the reach of Jesus draws close and touches them and says, get up, don't be afraid. Never any fear in Jesus. The mediator Jesus lifts them up. Of course, this cloud that envelops them is deeply symbolic. It's it's often a reference to the very presence of God. Solomon's temple being dedicated of uh, of the, the cloud on the mountain for Moses in so many ways. Front and center is the word spoken. Listen to my son. Listen to him. Not just another lawgiver or prophet of truth. He is the eternal word. The day the world changed. That Jesus is transfigured and that demands that our worldview is reordered. The Son of God is incarnate, one of us. God made flesh. Everything is different. I had the joy of spending a week with my nephew recently, and and he's kind of, we, we ended up having some conversations about faith. And it was really apparent as he, he said to me, he said, um, it's really good to spend some time with you, which he was affirming. And uh, he said, as many young people grow up, he said, I don't really know much about your life. I don't know if that's a journey. You grow up and suddenly think, oh, there's other people with stories. And we had chance over that time. But I, I remember we were, we were in Bath Abbey, and we happened to be standing over the font. And he said, um, why is it that you believe this stuff? 
I thought it was really symbolic, standing over that moment and just talking about my story. But I, it was like his whole paradigm had no place for the mystery and the wonder of God. It's like he was just unaware of all this stuff. And I, just, and I spoke to him. I said, this sounds mad to you, doesn't it? He went, yeah. He said, I kind of understand what you're trying to say. It's a little bit like that as the disciples encounter this transfigured Jesus. That their whole paradigm is shifting and they understand and they perceive his greatness. But it takes them a while to figure out that this great one will be nailed to a cross and bleed and die. But this is who he is. Transfiguration lifts the lid. Jesus has no equals, not even Moses and Elijah. No other teacher, no other sage, but Jesus. In his walk and his journey to Jerusalem, the clouds gather, but the heart of Jesus is expansive. In his willingness, in his courage, in his strength, in his determination, and his love for the Father, his heart beats with love. In beautiful power, because through his death, every wrong is undone. The power of the evil one, even death, is vanquished. That is power. Through his amazing Amazing love. And in the glory of transfiguration, we see the glory of God towards the cross. And the love and beauty of God, as he is transfigured, the beauty of his being shattered and marred and his ragged body breathing its last. Pray that in transfiguration, we have confidence in the storm to know who he is. The Son of God. He endures and prevails through the darkness. Trust and obey. To have our confidence even in the dark times restored, even in the news reports of Ukraine and the brutality that is ongoing. It is horrific. But the transfiguration reminds us that he is the Lord, shining like the sun in more brilliance and will not be outdone. Our sisters and brothers through the ages have endured so much and are. What keeps them going? The vision of Jesus. Knowing him within. And knowing that he holds us. Let's pray together.